If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup is poured out for, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood but behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table for the son of man goes and is as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed and they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this God bless the reading of his word As we have been making our way through Luke's gospel, we come to this passage this morning and though uh, we believe that all of Scripture is holy, all of it is a sacred, this morning we find ourselves in one of those passages that somehow feels more holy than the others. We find ourselves just hours before Jesus will go to the cross and we see here at the beginning the joy that He takes in being with His disciples for this last meal together. More importantly, we see some of Jesus' final instructions about what He is going to accomplish through His suffering. These words that we have read in this passage not only bind our Bibles together as Jesus explains both His fulfillment of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant, but a passage that also sets before us the basis for one of our most cherished Christian practices, namely the Lord's Supper. And it's a wonderfully rich passage, and as we seek to understand this passage, we want to do so around three key themes that Jesus teaches His disciples and so teaches us today. And our hope is that in understanding this passage from Luke 22, we will not only appreciate Christ, but also His table better this morning. The first thing that we want to see uh, from His last supper with His disciples is the fulfillment of Christ's purpose. The fulfillment of Christ's purpose. As you read this passage, especially if you were to 
If you were to sit down sometime and just start with Luke chapter 1, verse 1, verse 1 and begin reading all the way through till the end of the book in chapter 24, uh, you would be able to feel the sense of gravity that is here in this passage in terms of the flow of Luke's narrative. We've actually seen this over the last few weeks as we have been looking at the last few chapters and we've seen this building tension in the narrative, this tension of imminency of Christ's death, but also his death at the hands of those who desire his death. Not only do you have this growing sense of danger from the religious leaders that we even read about here as they have set it firmly on their minds to murder Jesus, but you also see this, this gravity, this tension as the reality is coming that Jesus is about to fulfill the eternal will and work of God his Father. And as we think about that then, as we think about the fulfillment of Christ's purpose, why he came into this world, we see that part of his purpose was to fulfill God's providence, to fulfill God's providence. Luke sets the stage by telling us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Again, this is no spur-of-the-moment decision. They don't just decide one day, you know what, let's just be done with Jesus. Let's just kill him. This is something that's been growing, uh, really, ever since that first sermon in Nazareth three years ago in Jesus' life. Uh, you, you remember he comes and he confronts the sinfulness of the people from his own town, and they want to throw him off the cliff right then. In these last few weeks, Jesus knows his time is coming and he's allowed that hostility to fester even more to the point that now it is an open hostility. The only thing keeping back these religious leaders from killing Jesus, at the very least from putting him on trial, is the fact that they don't want to do it in front of a crowd. They fear, they fear their reputation among the people who at least at this point respect and love Jesus. But there's more at work here than just the evil desires of the religious leaders. Luke tells us in verse 3, Satan himself entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. And when you read those verses, it is at least for me hard to imagine a more sinister and sinful scene in human history. John Piper rightly says the death of Jesus Christ was murder and that it was the most spectacular sin ever committed. But notice what Jesus says down in verse 22 when he's finished eating with his disciples. He says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. His death his murder is not going to be an accident. Whenever people talk about how it's been determined in the Bible, they're speaking about God's providence. That is, His sovereign working of all things in history towards the end for which He created them. It is part of Jesus' purpose in coming into this world that He would die on this cross. And yet at the same time, Luke has made it clear that His death is also the result of humanity's sin. In fact, Jesus, in the same breath, affirms both things. Verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, as God has planned, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God is sovereign, and Judas and the religious leaders are still held accountable, 
and responsible for their actions. The chief priests, the scribes, the betrayer are all guilty before God just as much as they are part of His plan to bring Christ to the cross. And that raises, at least for me, two questions. How and why? How is that possible and why would God design things that way? In regards to the how, remember this, God is not making them sin. This may be part of His sovereign plan, but God does not tempt nor cause anyone to sin. In fact, James will say in chapter 1 that everyone, when they are tempted and they sin, are actually carried along by their own desires. In other words, the temptation that they succumb to, the sin that they commit, has been in their hearts all along. It's what they want to do. Nobody sins because the devil made them do it. Nobody sins because they're forced to. We all sin because in that moment, that's what we want most. We want that sin. Likewise, James says in chapter 4 of his letter that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. This means that his influence over Judas was not absolute. He was not merely a pawn. Satan may have put the temptation in his heart to do it, but Judas freely chose to do it. I mean, consider, consider what it would have taken for Judas to make this decision. He has been with Jesus from the beginning. He's one of the, the 12 disciples, the original 12 who have now become apostles, the leader of this large group of disciples. He's heard every sermon that Jesus has preached. He's seen every miracle that Jesus has performed. He's heard Jesus teach and preach and say things like, be on guard against all covetousness. You just have to wonder, as his disciples are gathered around, as the crowds are gathered around, does he look at Judas when he says, be on guard against all covetousness, knowing what is coming in the days ahead? Even under the sovereign hand of God, these men are culpable for their actions because they themselves sinfully desired to commit these actions. These are true, true, two truths that the Bible holds, perhaps in tension, but nevertheless, alongside one another. Humanity, sinful humanity, is responsible for its sin, and yet even that sin is part of God's sovereign plan. Nothing is happening outside of His control. But that leads to the next question, why does God even allow sin? Why is such a thing even part of His plan in the first place? And in my mind, one of the verses that is so decisive comes from the lips of a man named Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. If you remember the story, he has reached a, a high point in his life. Joseph is second in command, the second highest ruler only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. But that's not how he started. That's not even where he was on his way to that position. And in fact, his brothers had sinned grievously against Joseph and caused him much pain and suffering for decades in his life. Nonetheless, when they are begging forgiveness, fearful that Joseph will kill them, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, I have sadly heard many Christians and pastors do all kinds of gymnastics to get out of that verse. They'll say things like, the brothers meant it for evil and God allowed it for good, or God used it for good. That's not what the text says. In English or in the original Hebrew, same verb. The brothers meant it for evil and God meant it for good. He ordained that to happen in the life of Joseph. Why? What is the good that resulted from that? Namely, his fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. 
Remember that Joseph is one of a son, that, that, uh, one of 12 sons that come from the descendants ultimately as descendants of Abraham that will become the nation of Israel. And if God had not so worked in Joseph's life, even in suffering, to bring him to the position of authority and power in which he was in Egypt, then his family would not be provided for. They would have died from starvation in their home country instead of living prosperously in Egypt. In that moment, that is the good. That is the good that God brought about through this evil intentions of Joseph's brothers. And likewise here. Likewise here, you think about the fullness of time, from where does Jesus come? He is an Israelite. If you do not have his providential hand in the life of Joseph, saving his brothers and their children and their families, allowing them to grow into the nation of Israel, so that down through the ages comes a son named Jesus Christ, then there's no salvation at all. And even here in the context of the planning the conspiring to murder Jesus. Jesus will say in John's gospel, we have much more of the conversation that took place, that he is about to be glorified on the cross. Paul says that all things were made for him and through him that he might be glorified in all things, Colossians 1. So there might be a million different reasons in the immediacy of any event going on, but ultimately God allows evil to exist in this world under his sovereign plan for the good of his people and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is certainly the case of the cross. The good was salvation for God's people through the glory of Jesus as the Savior. There is a purpose for Jesus as he fulfills God's providence. But more than that, we also see that part of his purpose is to fulfill God's promises. He fulfills God's promises. It's almost hard to imagine the magnitude of history and, and prophecy that is coming to fulfillment here. So much of God's work in the history of Him redeeming His people is now coming together in so many different ways. So many images and signs and rituals are now finding their substance, the substance of their shadowy nature being revealed. It all begins with the kind of meal that the apostles are eating here, namely the Passover meal. Do you remember what the Passover was? If you don't, go back and read Exodus chapters 11 and 12 this afternoon. But for now, let me just give you kind of the, the big picture, the highlights. The Passover meal, the celebration that Israel kept, came on the eve of their exodus from Egypt. You'll remember that God had brought about nine dramatic plagues in Egypt. He had gone through Moses to Pharaoh and said, you need to let my people Israel go that they might worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, no way, they are slave labor. I'm not letting them go. We need them to, to do all of the building that we do. Plus, we're afraid of them. And so Moses told Pharaoh, if you don't, plagues will be brought upon your house. And Pharaoh said, I don't care. They're not going anywhere. And so, so one after another, after another, after another, God demonstrates his power over the Egyptian gods through all of these plagues, turning the Nile into blood, killing off cattle through pestilence, so many things. And yet he still will not let them go. And so God promises one final devastating plague over all of Israel, namely the firstborn of everything and anything in Israel. From the cattle to the slave girl to Pharaoh himself, the firstborn are going to die if you do not let my people go. And he refuses. 
And God is merciful and gives the way of escape for Israel. He tells them to gather together as families, to find a lamb without spot spot or blemish, to prepare that lamb for dinner. And with eating with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they are to celebrate what is going to be their redemption come the next day. And the blood of that lamb that was prepared was to be put on the doorpost outside their homes. This would be a sign for God of their faith in him. So that when his judgment, his, the, the death of the firstborn comes upon Egypt, that judgment will pass over the people of Israel by the sign of the blood over their doorposts, allowing the firstborn to live. God went on to say, as he gave them instructions, that even as they prepare for their salvation, their redemption from Egypt, this is not a one-time event. The Passover meal would be celebrated year after year after year at the same time. Why? So that they might look back and remember this moment when God not only displayed his power, but showed mercy on them and redeemed them from Egypt, that they might come to Israel, the land of Israel, and be his people. And so every year, families would gather together around lamb, around the bread, around the herbs. And when the children asked, why do we do this every year? God said, tell them that this is the day that the Lord your God has saved you. This is the day we remember how God passed over them in judgment and struck down the Egyptians. This event was for Israel, the revolution of 1776 for us. It is that, that seminal event that defines them as a nation, as a people. They are God's covenant people, redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. And as the years go on, God promises. Remember that exodus that you celebrate? Remember that redemption from your slavery? Guess what? I am going to bring about a new exodus. Not just from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery. The prophet Isaiah says this new exodus is going to come by the sacrifice of a servant who will suffer for his people. Likewise, the prophet Jeremiah says that this exodus will come with a new covenant marked by a once-for-all forgiveness of God's people. They don't need to offer sacrifices every year for forgiveness. And now all of this is finding its fulfillment in Christ. All of these promises, all of this rich history, all of this identity of Israel is now coming in the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. And the apex of that fulfillment is seen in the fullness of Christ's propitiation. The fullness of Christ's propitiation. Jesus in this meal is now no longer just looking back, but looking ahead to what God is about to accomplish. So as he finishes this Passover meal with his apostles, he begins looking forward and teaching them about his coming death. He says that, he, that Luke says rather in verse 19 that Jesus took bread and when he, had given them, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus moves from just celebrating the, the past, the Passover event, to something that now points forward to what he will experience in less than 24 hours. 
He is both describing what will happen and what it means that it happens. Through the bread and the cup, Jesus is explaining to his disciples about the importance of his impending death and what he will accomplish. There he will provide salvation from God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus will provide salvation from God's wrath. That's the heart of that word propitiation, which aren't you glad I didn't make you spell in the outline. It's a very wonderful biblical word, but it's not used hardly at all in English anymore. In fact, uh, I didn't even know this word existed until I went to Bible college, but apparently it was used all the time. The problem is language and culture moves on, but the Bible doesn't because the Bible is God's eternal word, and it's an essential, essential theological concept that the Bible weighs heavily on, namely this, God is angry towards sinners, not just sin. God is not just angry towards sin, people commit sin, and He is angry towards those sinners. We may find that offensive, but it's the only logical, the only just response of a holy God in the presence of sin. And for God's wrath to be propitiated means that His wrath becomes satisfied. It is sufficiently poured out that justice has been served. And that's what Christ does on the cross. He propitiates. He satisfies God's wrath. He becomes the object of God's wrath against sin so that that wrath is fully extinguished. On the cross, justice has been served for God's people. And notice for whom Christ dies, not for himself. He says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. There's an old story that's been repeated in slightly different ways over many, many years. I have no idea if it's true. It might be based on a true story. It might just be apocryphal, but it captures and illustrates well the truth of our passage, the truth of the gospel message itself. It begins with an elderly man kneeling in front of a tombstone in Tennessee not long after the Civil War. Now the person there sees that, that man kneeling and weeping before that tombstone, and he goes over to console the man. And he begins by putting his hand on his shoulder and asking, is that your son buried in that grave? The man says, no. He says, I have a wife and seven young children all alive on a farm in Illinois. But years ago, I received a draft letter from the Union Army calling me up to fight for my country. We had no other relatives, and I knew that leaving my wife behind with these young children would be a difficult thing indeed. I was prepared to go, but just before I left, in fact, the morning that I left, our neighbor's son came and offered to take my place. Going under the name of another person, this young man fought bravely and died on the field of battle, fighting for the freedoms of people that he did not know and he would never see. Surprised by all this, the bystander's eyes moved from the weeping man before the grave to the gravestone itself to see these words under the name, He died for me. That's what Jesus is teaching about the cross. This is what the bread and the cup represent. Jesus tells his disciples that his body will be broken. His blood will be poured out, not because of what he has done or for him, but for you, he says, for you. 
Jesus doesn't have any sin. There's no need for him to have forgiveness for himself. There is no salvation to be secured for his soul. But we are not Christ. We are sinful. We are under God's wrath. We do need forgiveness and salvation. And that is why Jesus dies. He offers his own blood and his own body as a substitute for us. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb caused God's wrath to pass over Israel as it swept through Egypt, so now the blood of Jesus, a man without any sinful spot or blemish, causes God's wrath to pass over us because he himself endured it. When we put our trust in Jesus to be our Savior, then like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, we can say that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Second thing that we see pictured in the bread and the cup is that on the cross, Jesus provided the sacrifice of the new covenant. He provided the sacrifice of the new covenant. The old covenant between God and Israel had been ratified by a blood sacrifice. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 24. We see Moses standing before the people on, uh, at the base of Mount Sinai. He's just received the law from God. He's read it to the people, and they have said, everything the law has, that God has spoken, we will do. In other words, we want to be God's people. We want Him to be our God. We will obey Him. And so Moses sends out young men to offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings to God. And after they slaughter many oxen, Moses takes the blood from that oxen, the blood from those sacrifices, and he takes the hyssop and dips it in, and he begins sprinkling half of the blood all over the altar. But then he turns before the people, and he begins to put the hyssop into the blood and to begin slinging it onto the people, sprinkling them with the blood as well, saying to them, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. By this shed blood, now you are God's people. You've entered into covenant with Him. He promises to be your God just as you have promised to be His people. But we know the people fail to keep this covenant. They failed to obey his law. They failed to love him with all of their mind, heart, soul, and strength. And they, the Bible says, hoard themselves after other gods, false gods from the nations around them. This is why God promises a new, a better covenant that his people will not break. Isaiah says that the Messiah will come and he will be the one who initiates this covenant. He will, in Isaiah 52 and 53, sprinkle not just Israel, but many nations, even as he pours out his soul for many, bearing their iniquities that they might be counted as righteous. What does Jesus say? He picks up and brings together these ideas of the blood of the covenant and the sprinkling of the nations in this new covenant. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant now in my blood. Jesus says, there's no animal that ratifies this new covenant. He will be the sacrifice. His blood will cover and ratify the new covenant people of God. His own blood will secure an eternal covenant between God and his people, the church.
And because that covenant is an everlasting one, we finally see here the future of Christ's people. The future of Christ's people. The last supper that Jesus celebrated is not the Lord's Supper. In this passage, Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his closest apostles. And yet, in the midst of that Passover meal, Jesus did lay the foundations for what will become known as the Lord's Supper. He pivots from finishing one old meal to begin a new meal. And in the midst of that, he draws on this imagery of the lamb's sacrifice for the salvation of God's people and says such will be his ministry. And he says it will be a ministry that is long remembered. So as we think about the implications of this passage for today, as we sit before this meal this morning before us of bread and cup, we need to remember that what we have here is a meal of continuing remembrance. A meal of continuing remembrance. Again, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I think these are some of the most beautiful words that Christ ever uttered, but they're also some of the most disputed. And ultimately, the dispute comes into this question What does the word is mean? What does is mean? Some believe that Jesus literally means the bread and the cup are mystically transformed to be his actual body and blood. That when he says, this bread is my body, he means that bread is becoming his body. This cup is my blood. That cup, the wine that's in there actually becomes his blood. That transformation continues today each time a priest prays over the elements of the service. But that's not our belief. And the question is, how are we justified in rejecting that notion? How are, we, how are we justified in rejecting that though the bread stays bread, it also becomes Christ's body? That though the cup stays the cup, the wine stays wine, it also becomes His actual blood. How do we justify not believing that? Well, many reasons, but three I want to point out to you this morning. First of all, Jesus is in the habit of speaking in metaphors and His disciples know it. You think about previously when Jesus said things like, I am the door of the sheep and I am the bread of life. His disciples do not take him literally. They do not look at him and say, we need to put hinges on the sky because he just said he's a door. They don't need to say, get out the butter because he just said he's a loaf of bread. Okay, they know Jesus speaks in metaphor. But secondly, consider that Jesus himself says that once this Passover is done, a, a, a meal of remembrance, he now starts this new meal of just wine and bread and says, you're going to do this in remembrance of me. He's signaling that it's not to be taken literally. It's a metaphor for remembering. And really, that comes in this larger and third context of the Passover celebration itself, where I think we have the most convincing argument. Remember that Jesus and his disciples have just consumed the Passover lamb. At that point in the meal, the father or the head of the family that is presiding over the gathering at that time, the position that Jesus is taking... In the Passover meal, after the lamb is eaten, then he would take the bread himself. He would break the loaf of bread and begin passing out the pieces to the family gathered. And here's what he would say. This is the bread of the affliction of my people in the wilderness, says the Lord. Now, if you're an Israelite, living in Israel, comfortable, prosperous, maybe even Jesus' disciples in that day, 
You're not going to hear those words, this is the bread of the affliction of my people in the wilderness, and think, this is my bread of affliction. The affliction's done. That bread of affliction in the wilderness is pointing back to the first Passover meal and about how God redeemed his people, provided salvation in the midst of that. You understand when they say, this is the bread of affliction, it's not the bread of affliction for you. It was for them. And you remember. You remember because in that bread of affliction that your forefathers ate, you now experience the fruit of their salvation. And so as, as, as this symbolized, looking back, pointing back to this salvation, so now I think as Jesus takes that same loaf of bread in the midst of that and begins to say, this bread is my body, they don't think, this is gross. Why are we eating his flesh? No, they, they know what's coming. They know what to expect. Now they say, oh, this represents something new now. It's, not, it's no longer pointing back to the first exodus and the Passover that God accomplished there. Now it's pointing back to something Jesus is doing. It's pointing to his body, which is given for them. And the same is true with the cup. The point is this, this table before us this morning the table at which Jesus himself sat, it's not an altar. Jesus did no sacrifice at the table in the Last Supper when he creates the Lord's Supper. He's saying, this is what is going to come. The sacrifice is on the cross and it is not to be repeated. Hebrews says on more than one occasion, three times, chapter 7, chapter 9, and chapter 10, that Christ offered himself once for all for the salvation of sins. And so just as Israel regularly looked back to God's seminal work in redeeming them from Egypt through that Passover meal, now we look back to Christ in this meal called the Lord's Supper. We, His people, regularly gather around this meal remembering His body broken for us, His blood poured out for us. We remember those historic realities of the gospel message and the salvation that was secured for us on that cross. We remember the way in which he has brought us together around his death now to be a new covenant community of believers. The meal at this table is one of continuing remembrance, but it's also one that looks forward to consummated redemption. Consummated redemption. As precious as the Lord's Supper should be to us now, it is not an eternal meal. We will not celebrate the Lord's Supper in heaven for all eternity. The table will not exist forever. Jesus says that here in this chapter, uh, in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, we can spend several minutes exploring Luke's theology of meals. That might be something you do uh, this afternoon or some other time this week. Just go through the gospel and look at every time Jesus is eating with someone or he's talking about eating with someone and the significance that's there theologically, both for the joy of those together and how it points to the joy of fellowship with God. And, and Jesus is taking great joy in being with his disciples. But already in chapters 13 and 14, he is saying, he has preached that in the kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, God will dine with his people. That God will sit down and enjoy table fellowship 
with all who believe. And Jesus is telling us likewise, this new meal that he is creating, this Lord's Supper meal, just as it points back to his death, it also anticipates his coming kingdom. And there will one day be fulfilled. Every time we sit down at this table, we are looking back to the cross and we are looking ahead to eternity. Jesus has promised just as he came once, so he will come again to fully establish his kingdom, to eradicate sin, create a new heaven and a new earth and enjoy fellowship with his people forever. And we live in between. Always mindful of his saving work, always expectant of his future return. And as wonderful as this meal is meant to be for us today, what is coming is going to be far better. In Revelation, the final meal at Christ's return, the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper meal is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Now that not only picks up some, some theological themes about Christ having a bride called the church, but it also picks up on the real world joy of a wedding celebration. I've been to a lot of weddings, including my own thankfully, but the reality is most of our wedding celebrations, as nice as they are, pale in comparison to what's going on in Jesus' day. The Jews celebrate it for, for weeks. I mean, can you imagine paying for that, something like that today? I mean, just day after day after day, feasting and, and rejoicing and celebrating. I mean, they took it seriously and they had fun. And, 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 and why is that? Because even, even for our wedding ceremonies, when the bride and the groom are sitting together, they've, they've made their vows, they have pledged to spend their lives together, to, to love one another before God. They're surrounded by friends and family, regardless if the food is from a five-star French restaurant or it's just from the Burger King down the road. None of that matters because they are experiencing the bliss, the joy of the eve of their new life together until they die. All that they've longed for, all they've anticipated has finally come. They are now about to become man and wife, one flesh forever before God's eyes. And nothing can threaten that kind of joy. Nothing can threaten that kind of happiness. And Jesus says, you think about that and you're going to understand what the final day is going to be like. Sin will be judged, my people resurrected with bodies that will live forever, and now we will gather together bride and groom, church and Christ to sit at this wedding banquet, this feast, where the people of God will gather around the Savior in the bliss of knowing that for all eternity, for all eternity, a million, billion, trillion years and going, no evil force, no sinful desire, no failure on his part or our part, nothing at all will prevent us from experiencing love and joy of fellowshipping with God face to face forever. That's what we anticipate in this simple meal here of bread and cup. That we have been betrothed to Christ and one day he will come for his bride. A famous pastor named James S. Stewart used to often tell of an old Scots minister who once noticed a young lady in his congregation so gripped by guilt over her sin, even as a believer, that she hesitated to partake of the Lord's Supper. She did not feel worthy to eat from the bread and drink from the cup. As that old minister looked at her, he said something that's worth remembering every time we come to the Lord's table. He said, take it last. It's meant for sinners. It's meant for sinners. 
This morning as we sit before this table about to partake of this bread and this cup, remember two things. First, remember your sin. Remember its depth. Remember its depravity. Remember that because of that, you deserve hell. Remember your sin. But then secondly, remember your Savior who loved you and gave his life for you. Father, that's what we want to do this morning, not just as we think about Jesus sitting down, beginning this wonderful institution of this supper that will go until he comes. But Father, we want to sit down at your table this morning, perhaps with a renewed sense of joy and pleasure in it, with a renewed sense of understanding about what it is and what we're doing and why we do it. Father, we pray that these two thoughts would be constant in our minds, not just our sin, but also our Savior who died for us. His body broken for us, His blood spilled for us. We pray this in His name. Amen.